0: Welcome to New Books Network. I'm John Trapagan, an anthropologist and professor in the Department of Religious Studies and the Program in Human Dimensions of Organizations at the University of Texas at Austin. Today, I'm pleased to welcome Dr. Ardith Thalmung to talk about her recent book, Everyday Economic Survival in Myanmar, which was published by the University of Wisconsin Press in 2019. Professor Thalmung, thank you for joining me on the New Books Network.
1: Thank you so much for having me, John.
0: Yeah, I'm, I'm delighted to have you here. And and of course, we've had many conversations in the past, so I'm looking forward to continuing our, our discussions. Um, I want to begin with a little bit of background about Professor Thamung. She's a professor and chair of the Department of Political Science at the University of Massachusetts, Lowell, which also just happens to be the department where I received my BA degree uh, awfully long time ago before she was part of the department. Um, She received her PhD in political science from the University of Wisconsin-Madison, and her master's in international relations from Yale. She has held both Fulbright and Fulbright Hayes Fellowships, and her research covers a range of topics focused on Myanmar, from uh, including internal migration, ethnic conflict, and most recently social media and democracy. Um, I usually start these interviews by asking authors how they became interested in the topic of their book and in the introduction, you actually go into some detail about your own uh, background, growing up in Myanmar, and um, how you were engaged in certain forms of daily economic activity. So, I'd like to begin by asking you to talk about those experiences and how you think they influenced your career as well as your research and writing of this book.
1: Well, uh, John, first of all, thank you so much for having me here and uh, for um, in, for a wonderful introductions about. Uh, me and my book. Um, I was born and raised in Burma, uh, which is now known as Myanmar, and I grew up in the 70s and 80s under a one-party political system controlled by the military that practiced socialist and isolationist policies. Uh, Myanmar is also a very diverse country, consisting of uh, about 100 uh, different language groups, but Bamar or Buddhists are the majority, since. The country became independent from Great Britain in 1948. It has experienced civil war between government army and minority groups uh, that took up arms for greater autonomy against uh, Burma. Burman-dominated government and military. So as a member of minority ethnic and religious group in a war-torn country, which also happens to be... One of the poorest and most authoritarian countries in the world, I have always been passionate about finding out the reasons why some countries remain poor and undemocratic, while others, especially those in our neighboring countries, have done better economically and politically. So these experiences influence the paths I have chosen in my professional career, as well as areas of concentrations, which are um, as you have mentioned, uh, ethnic conflicts, political economy, and democratization. And this particular book project was motivated by my experiences growing up in Burma, especially um, on a variety of coping strategies myself and my family members used to use to deal with poverty and authoritarian political system which also resonate with the experiences of millions of other Burmese citizens who try to overcome economic challenges they face on a daily basis. So the book project allows me to engage in a more systematic analysis of different types of these coping strategies that have been used by ordinary people in the country and how they have an impact on individual and collective welfare and the economy and the political system.
0: Yeah, I think in the in the introduction, you actually talk about some of the things you personally had to do. Can can you talk a little bit about some of these because they were really fascinating and engaging?
1: Yes. So one of the so in my book, I talk about um, I um, divide categorize these coping strategies into four different categories: Um, economic coping, social coping. Political coping and psychological coping, and um, when I was growing up in uh, in the eighties, uh, most of the strategies that we used were economic coping strategies. Especially after nineteen eighty eight, um, um, all the universities were closed because of the you know uh, the uh, popular demonstrations against the military uh, regime and that the military. Um, Took harsh measure against the protester by um, by basically killing thousands of you know student-led demonstrations and eventually closed down the uh, university. So I was a university student, and all of a sudden I found myself you know not having um, not having anything to do. So I started looking for. Uh, Different um, economic opportunities. Um, I uh, I became a pig broker. Yeah. <laughs> so that was uh, that was one of the jobs that I I had it for almost a year. Um, in Burma, most people try to have additional income by um, raising their pigs, and but eventually, the idea here is to slaughter the pig and to uh, to earn additional money, but they ended up not wanting to kill their own animal because they, uh, develop attachment to it. So I became mm-hmm. a pig broker. I went around the neighborhood and I, you know, I, I have a partner who is, um, you know, who is a, a, a butch, butcher and, um, and he would, I would partner with him and, um, every man we would kill, you know, a couple of, uh, Pick, and we will sell the meat for higher profits, and that's that's one of the ways in which you know I make some um, additional income um, to, uh, when I was growing up in the country in the in the 80s and early 90s.
0: Mm. Yeah, it's 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 a really fascinating part of the book. As you read through that, you, you you realize you you were living this. In addition to ultimately winding up, you know, studying this particular lifestyle, and I, I think that adds a great deal of depth to the book as well. Because you you have this kind of really deep understanding of of what life is like as people are trying to figure out how to deal with these economic realities and and basically make a living as best as one can. Um, I think it was interesting to me that early in the book, you, you talk about the importance of um, examining what you refer to as everyday politics, and you differentiate this from more restricted views of politics as belonging to the realms of government, because they miss a great deal of behavior that is, you know, truly politically significant. And, and for me as an anthropologist, and of course, that because I'm an anthropologist, I tend to work at the micro scale of societies, I work with small communities, I found this to be a very important point in terms of thinking about political behavior, and I I note that it really shapes the argument of the entire book, and so uh, could you talk a bit about what you mean by everyday politics and why it's important for political scientists to develop research around this area?
1: Yes. Um, Political scientists tend to focus, and and like anthropologists, uh, political scientists tend to focus on larger issues such as elections, uh, government structures, and Major arenas of uh, public policy making, but everyday politics, everyday activities in private realms have been uh, ignored by uh, many political scientists. Uh, one political scientist, Ben Kovliet, uh, who is who also happened to be my uh, mentor, uh, mm-hmm. described everyday politics as econom as activities undertaken by families, neighborhoods, religious groups, corporations that focus on distribution of key resources. And these everyday activities can can be as simple as attempt to cut basic expenses in food, uh, education, healthcare, or engage in second or third jobs to have additional income, or buying lottery tickets to make money, or seeking help from religious uh, leaders and Astrologers to deal with economic challenges. They can also include attempts to negotiate with authority figures who are um, responsible for, you know, one's um, economic uh, problems. So Kovlid argued that many of these activities reveal no overt political message, involve little or no organization, and they occur by means of low-key, subtle expressions that indirectly or privately endorse or resist prevailing rules and orders and establishment. In my book, I find that the accumulations of these daily activities can have impact on the larger political structures. In fact, these everyday activities uh, were attributed uh, to the collapse of collective farmings in China, or political and economic reforms that took place in other poor and non-Western countries. It is therefore uh, important for me that political scientists look at the this my, micro um, affairs to so have a better and more comprehensive understanding of the roots of changes and transformations that have significant political implications.
0: Yeah, I think that this is I mean, actually when I, when I. You know, read the book, I thought to myself, this is, you know, in, in some ways part of the reason that I moved away from political science and into anthropology is because political science lives at this kind of macro level and has a way of often missing all of this activity that's going on at a, at a much more micro level. And you see this also with economics. And, and I think of some of the things that I've seen, like, um, well, for example, patterns of gift giving. Um, in the little, you know, in Japan or really where I do my work are really interesting. Uh, and you, you watch as, as objects move around, you know, people will bring a gift to somebody's house and in Japan, the custom is that you don't open the gift. You just set it aside and say, thank you. Hmm. And that same gift may wind up at somebody else's house later in the day. Wow. And yeah, and there's this kind of really interesting flow of, of, of sort of social engagement that's happening through the gifts. And I think political engagement also can work this way. But if you're always up at that higher level, you miss all that stuff.
1: Exactly. So, yes.
0: Yeah. You know, so I think this is one of the things I really uh, enjoy about the book is that it, it just, it really gets into the nitty gritties of these kinds of very you know detailed interactions that people have on a daily basis that are, are politically charged. And one of the things that's, I think, really interesting in the book is you spent a lot of time focusing on entrepreneurial activity at the local level. And, you know, as I got, as I read the book, I found myself, um, feeling that the context you're looking at is just teeming with entrepreneurial activity in, in part stimulated by the, the difficult political situation as people trying to figure out how to, to get by. And one of the things that struck me is that the, um, the entrepreneurial activity is really not motivated by the types of things that I think most Americans typically associate with entrepreneurialism, things like getting rich or personal satisfaction or attaining early retirement. And this is actually something I've also found in, in my own work on entrepreneurial ecosystems in rural Japan, that the motivations for entrepreneurial activity can be quite different depending on the cultural context, and certainly different from those that are often expressed in American academic business literature on the topic. And so I was wondering if you could talk a, a bit about what you see as motivating entrepreneurial activity among the people with whom you worked in, in Myanmar and how you think that might differ, differ from entrepreneurialism in the United States.
1: Yes, this is a great question. Um, entrepreneurial activities, I believe, are shaped by political and economic contexts within which one finds one set. So, And like in America where you have more established rules, regulations and uh, well-established procedures where you can borrow money from the government or banks to stop your businesses and where you have very much uh, predictable political and, and economic environments that allow people to plan and to accumulate resources a majority of people in countries like Burma operate within these unpredictable environments and with very limited uh, economic resources. Uh, You have laws and rules and regulations, but they're not always strictly enforced. And sometimes uh, policy can be mended and twisted depending on the individual local authorities that you are dealing with. So most of the small scale and here I'm only focusing on small-scale uh, family-based entrepreneurs, um, because there are also a, a, a handful of, you know, activities that are, con- that, are uh, that took place within the, the medium and large-scale uh, businesses. Yes. So most small-scale family-based entrepreneurs tend to focus on making additional income to survive, rather than to expand their activities and to. Acc- Accumulate Well, and that, that's what differentiates the entrepreneurial activities in countries like Burma and those in the United States and the small scale entrepreneurial activities in Burma tend to engage in activities that do not require lots of investment and that can be easily done or that can be uh, easily incorporated within their existing uh, sched- schedules and activities. So you find that many small-scale entrepreneur activities would gear to what activities like setting up home-based uh, grocery or snack shops or raising, you know, uh, chicken and pigs or uh, planting some um, cash crops in your backyards or setting up a food stall or having you know, a home-based weaving, sewing and hand- hairdressing activities at home. And most of these are usually done by women so that they can incorporate these activities into their household daily activities. so in many situations, you could end up in a situation where almost everyone in this village on in a neighborhood tried to sell the same goods or compete mm-hmm. for the same customers, which eventually defeat the purpose of making additional income.
0: Yeah, I thought, you know, your, your own experience doing as a, as a pig broker, I think really kind of captures this, though, is, is one of the things that you you obviously must have done is, is whether it was overt or, or not, you analyzed the market, looked at where there was a need and said, okay, I can do that. And, and figured out how to address that need, which then turned into a way to make income. And that, that's pretty much a, a definition of what an entrepreneur does. Is you, you you look at the market and say, this is a need. Now, what's interesting is that it's a need, in this case, that's in, in some ways, you know, very emotional, very cultural, um, that people become attached to their pigs. And so they can't slaughter them. Um, but that's, you know, that's very much, I think, context dependent example of entrepreneurialism.
1: Yes. Um, and I, I think back, if, if I look back, I, I was, you were right, I was very resourceful. I identified the areas that, you know, I have certain advantage, right? I, I know this person um, who can slaughter pigs. And I also um, have parents who can provide me with um, additional, you know, um, additional startup uh, uh, cash, but not many people are, if, um, are in that kind of situation, so unfortunately uh in many situations, all these small scale activities just tend to focus on you know what other people have done right not not having the resources and the capacity to identify the areas where they can fill the niche that and they can fully advantage and satisfy um the uh, a demand for particular goods and services,
0: yeah. I think uh, it's it's interesting as you get into this discussion of entrepreneurs, you, you do something I found uh, really quite fascinating. You you divide entrepreneurs into two broad groups in terms of the way that they sort of engage in in actions or, or acts of loyalty. And uh, you talk about those who exhibit loyalty, uh, loyally acceptant behavior as being people who are generally satisfied with their lot and with the most official with most official requirements for doing business, uh, like registering your activities or, or paying government fees. But they also try to do things that are aimed at improving their relationships with government officials through gift giving and cultivation of personal networks and even bribery. And you contrast this with people who are grudgingly loyal, um, or entrepreneurs who are grudgingly, grudgingly loyal. Who comply with formal and informal requirements of doing business, but they do it hesitantly. And you you note that differentiating these groups can be quite difficult at times. And so, I'd like you to talk a bit about how these different approaches work out in daily economic life in Myanmar, how they influence entrepreneurial behavior and, and even success.
1: Mm-hmm. Um, actually, these terms are not my original terms. Uh, mm-hmm. I'm inspired by a political scientist. Um, by the name of Kelly Sai, who wrote a book titled Capitalism Without Democracy. And this is about China. And her book questions the conventional wisdom that showed that capitalism can promote democracy because entrepreneurs are more likely to oppose government restrictions and heavy regulations and are more favorable to environment that ensure private property rights, innovation and creativity. So according to this, line of argument businesses can only survive and prosper under free and democratic government. But Tsai finds that uh, this is not really happening in China due to the positions and activities of Chinese entrepreneurs um, that are not favored to democratic reforms, either because they display loyalty to the state or they prefer to rely on their own rather than um, using collective efforts to resolve their business difficulties or or they prefer to address the interests of their families and their individuals' um, needs rather than advocating for larger political reforms. And Tsai offer different types of Chinese entrepreneurs and argue that the perpetuation of this communist regime has to do with entrepreneurs who comply willingly um, or those who accept the legitimacy of uh, the communist government, or and those who comply grudgingly. And in her book, she seems to describe these different types of entrepreneurs in a very you know, clear cut ways. In Myanmar, however, uh, and especially under the military rule, which lasted until 2020, uh, 2010, it's very difficult to differentiate entrepreneurs who comply willingly uh, from those who did so grudgingly. Um, uh, First of all, it's not really, it was not very, it was not a practical thing for me to conduct interviews and survey to identify whether people comply willingly or grudgingly. Um, But I have seen most uh, medium and large scale businesses do almost the same thing simultaneously. Uh, Most of them, Uh, Almost all of them tend to cultivate particular relationships with, you know, relevant state authorities. Um, Almost all of them tend to evade government regulations, um, government taxes. Mm -hmm. Almost all of them uh, bribe authorities to uh, obtain special privileges. And almost all of them complain about government in private so it's very difficult to tell uh, whether these behaviors are a sign of the level of support given to the government or just self-interested activities to accumulate their wealth. And I hope that this these type of activities can be studied more systematically um, under a more free and democratic uh, government. But under yeah. the military government, it was very difficult to you know to really differentiate people who comply willingly or people who comply grudgingly.
0: So I'm curious, how did you manage to do this study in the context of a, you were doing this while the military government was still going on? Yes. So how did you, how did you, you know, how did you get permission to do the study? How did you, I'm curious how you, you kind of managed to conduct the study.
1: Um, <laughs> okay, so, uh, Burma was under very restricted political environments until um, I would say 2010. It was very difficult to conduct uh, research. But uh, one can as a, a ex-citizen of Myanmar I'm a- able to go uh, back to the country almost every year uh, sometimes twice a year to do research. Um, and um, you will be okay. The government is very paranoid. The government, the military government, was very paranoid about what have been are written critically about them. So they would have a you know a, a blacklist where you know there will be uh, there's individuals who are critical of government will be you know banned from entering the country. So that's that that's the. Um, the situations before 2010, 2011. Uh, But I was still able to go uh, back into the country because um, I don't, you know, I was very careful not to openly criticize the government, uh, the military government openly. And many of the things that I focus on, many of the writings that I focus uh, tend to be I would say non-political activities, right? Not not necessarily on human rights violations, uh, the abuse and the exploitations of the military, uh, but more on you know everyday life experiences, uh, people's experiences as, as um, you know particular uh, religious ethnic groups, um, and um, and I was also very careful about how I analyze and how I uh, summarize and how I um, how I present my findings. So, so throughout the military government and until and, and now, I was never banned from entering the country, and I could I could go there, you know, as a you know as a, a visiting the country, and I will still be uh, you know traveling around the country to observe, to talk to people, to do some interviews. But I was very careful about you know keeping the um, the the identity um, yeah. of the people who come into contact with me in order to ensure their safety and well-being
0: yeah that's uh i think you know of course one of the most important things when we do any kind of human subjects research and yes um you know i think it's it's also you know the, the example here shows us you know how the the context also shapes what we can do and in some ways it sounds to me and, and you know correct me if i'm wrong that the The overarching sort of macro political context is part of the reason you wound up being able to focus on this micro level of of daily political activity, uh, which really opens up a whole new way of kind of or different way of thinking about what we are doing in terms of politics. Would would you say that makes sense?
1: Yes, that does. And that was really my my purpose is to link the connections, the relationship between uh, macro level analysis and micro level analysis. Mm -hmm. Yes.
0: Well, and and you do it really well. It's it's something that yeah. I think is it really comes through very strongly in the book. And uh, one of the things I think is related to this is is you you talk about um, the you you discuss the issue of voice in both individual and collective exor- efforts to pressure f- um, for economic and political change, and and the importance of voice and. I was wondering if you could talk a bit about what you, you mean by this concept and also describe some of the different ways in which voice is deployed among different actors in your field site. And I, I kind of found myself wondering if entrepreneurial activity itself might be thought of as a kind of voice in the way that you describe it in the book. And, and So could you talk more about that?
1: Yes. Uh, the term voice is not a new term in political science or economics discipline. Um, Albert Hirschman... Who is an economist in his book titled Is It Voice and Loyalty? Use the term voice to discuss this as one of the strategies employed by firms or businesses against the state or government. So voice um, is to me, uh, according to my definition, is a situation where people speak out either individually or collectively to express their grievances and to advocate for change. Um, and, you know, this could take various forms. But since um, Hirschman uh, came up with this, this term voice, uh, different research and studies use and interpret uh, the term voice differently. But in my um, definition, voice is a situation where people speak up you know, openly, right, to either Uh, express their grievance or to advocate for particular policy change. And that could take many forms, um, either through formal institutions, such as through government agencies, courts, or informal institutions, such as, you know, contacting influential local leaders, uh, using social media and human rights groups to make your voice heard. So under the authoritarian government, many people use this voice strategy as their last option. You know, they try to comply with regulations. Um, they use, you know, or um, they 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 try to accommodate, you know, whatever um, stringent uh, regulations that are imposed on there. or they will sometimes use um, what I refer to as passive resistance um, mm-hmm. to um, to make their lives more tolerable. And the passive resistance are different from vice. They're less subtle, right, which could include evading uh, regulations, evading forced labor, um, or paying taxes. So I don't consider most of the entrepreneur activities as a form of vice, according to my own definition, because I've I see that some of these entrepreneurial activities, especially the one that took place under authoritarian regime, uh, focus either on complying, right, trying to be uh, innovated but still trying to accommodate um, the system, uh, existing situations by making the situations more tolerable, or uh, their passive resistance forms of, of activities that include a more subtle. Um, you know, form of resistance, uh, such as uh, bribing authorities. And these can be differentiated by my definition of uh, voice, uh, where people, you know, openly uh, engage in protests or, I know, make their grievances known through uh, official channels or unofficial channels, such as social media or uh, human rights groups.
0: So, or or demonstrating and programs.
1: Right, like yeah. that.
0: Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. I, I guess <laughs> what we've seen over the past week is an example of right. Right, in the U.S. is an <laughs> example of voice by that definition. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so, as you know, when I as I look at the book, I, I well, it, it, it represents what I think of as a very ethnographically rich study, or, or what an anthropologist uh, Clifford Geertz refers to as thick description. There's enormous detail. in Content as you work through the book. And it really brings the reader into a feeling of very close proximity with life in in the parts of Myanmar that that where you did your work. And you you note that people deal with the economic stresses that they face, or as they deal with these economic stresses. Ordinary system, ordinary citizens draw on a variety of support systems and social networks that are largely based on diffused or horizontal relationships of Mutual indebtedness and obligation. This is actually something I found quite interesting because I, I see, and of course in a very different context in, in Japan, um, a very similar kind of thing where where there's this kind of ongoing um, web of indebtedness and obligation that, that shapes how all sorts of different activities, whether political, economic, um, or just you know social engagement, happen. And an example I a little bit earlier of gift giving is is part of this you bring a gift to someone's house when you visit because it it creates that kind of mutual interconnection of obligation of course when the person comes back to your house at some point they bring a gift and this kind of keeps going back and forth and i'm, I'm kind of curious about how you you know conducted research on these networks what sort of methodologies what sorts of ideas did you bring to looking at how the relationships work and um, also, you know, how they form a kind of uh, daily political economy that shapes and constrains behavior for the people uh, who live in the area that you studied.
1: Yes, um, this is also an, another very good question, John. Um, Thank you. <laughs> um, so these, these supports networks are, you know, greatly influenced, um, the, the analysis greatly influenced uh, the ways Greatly influenced by my own upbringing, where we use these uh, resources at, uh, in order to deal with um, economic challenges. So in contrast to rich countries where supports are usually provided by government, right? Either in the form of food stamps, unemployment benefits, free healthcare, financial aid to students, poor countries tend to rely on support from family, neighbors, community, and religious organizations. And diffuse and horizontal form of uh, social support is a common practice in countries like Burma that has very limited economic resources. Um, And it involves everyday forms of assistance or a simple random act of kindness that one shows to members of the family, neighbors, and strangers. Uh, For instance, it's not uncommon to find grandparents taking care of their grandchildren uh, whose parents walk abroad or in remote areas, or uh, to see community organizations providing assistance to members for emergency help and assistance. So under this kind of diffused form of social support, everyone is a receiver as well as a giver. I have seen an elderly woman who was supported by six of her children, but she also supported her uh, one married son who was struggling uh, financially. And these forms of social support is also based on ex- Expectations of reciprocity in that the, whoever under stress or under difficulties will be helped and supported by those who are more fortunate with the expectations that the favor will return when their situations improve. So I begin to appreciate, I began to appreciate this type of social support system uh, based on my experience and especially after living in America for f- many years where. Responsibility to help the poor and the elderly are placed on government rather than on the family, the community, and the neighbors. So I started to pay particular attention to this type of social and community support, and uh, by making a more systematic list of these activities, whenever I go back to the country and whenever I travel around the country, um, I will be in, I will be looking at. I will be mainly looking at these particular activities uh, when I stay at villages and when, when I travel all over the country. And, um, and this way I was able to compile and, and which I was not really surprised that you know these practices are very uh, I found that these practices were very prevalent. Uh, they were very crucial in the environment that lacked sufficient support from the government. But some of these widespread practices can also pra- place tremendous stress on individuals who are under social obligations to be responsible for members of families, um, ethnic, religious groups uh, who are less fortunate than they are. So it does have some, you know, positive and negative aspects to it.
0: Yeah, that, that's been my experience in in studying, uh, particularly aging in uh, rural Japan. Is is that you know there's kind of the the, the, recipro- the the reciprocity that goes mm-hmm. on uh, also can be very constraining. So, you know, India and Japan, mm-hmm. the, traditionally it's the eldest son, although an awful lot has changed. Right. It's expected to take care of mom and dad when they get old. Yes. But that also really constrains his ability to pursue a career, to do the things he wants to do in life. And um, on the other hand, he also traditionally was the one who received all of the inheritance. That's not mm-hmm. the way. It works now, but, um, you know, one of the things I I've found in my own work in, in Japan is, as I look at these, this kind of very sort of reciprocity oriented way of, of engaging in social interactions where there is this sense of indebtedness and obligation, it, it seems to me that people tend to have, um, I don't know, a very strong sort of sense or radar about the needs of other people. They tend to be very other oriented in some ways. Right. And for me, it seems very different from the United States, where people tend to be very kind of turned in on their own specific needs. Um, and I think we see it in things like you know voting, where people vote for their personal needs rather than for the society's needs. Do you see that in in Myanmar as well?
1: Um, yes, um, I I would say in terms of. You know, I I would say ethnic identity is uh, very prevalent, and that's where um, people uh, mobilize various activities based on, you know, ethnic identity and religious uh, identity. And um, both ethnic and religious uh, organizations are have been able to provide um, provide uh, a variety of assistance, but. They tend to be based exclusively on this one particular, you know, organizations or, or, or faith groups than um, being very inclusive about it. So, um, and sometimes, um, you know, that could also put a lot of uh, stress and strains on individuals who are members of this particular ethnic and religious groups, because um, they are automatically, you know, bound by their responsibility, their obligations to these uh, larger collective communities rather than to themselves as individuals.
0: Yeah, that's an interesting thing with Japan is that you you don't have the kind of ethnic diversity that you see in Myanmar or, or the United States or you know you have a you have some very I mean there are obviously ethnic groups in Japan, um, but overall they're a fairly small proportion of Population. You also don't have much religious diversity. Yeah, the vast majority of Japanese are they're Buddhist and Shinto at the same time. They Mm. they do both, and they don't um, culturally. There's very little uh, sense of exclusivity in religious belonging. So um, people don't really feel like, oh, my religious group is the right one, and other ones are the wrong, or somehow my identity is as a Buddhist as opposed to something else, uh, that sounds different from Myanmar. It yeah. sounds like there's a stronger sense of, of that kind of religious cohesion.
1: Right. That's correct. Yes.
0: Yeah, that's, that's interesting because that, that's something that's always struck me about Japan yeah. is um, the the way Japanese engage religious uh, institutions and religious behavior is, is really quite different from many parts of the world. Hmm. They don't they don't rely too much on a sense of um, belief as being at the core of things. It's it's more the rituals that you do that matter. If you do the rituals, you're fine. Mm. It doesn't matter too much whether right. you identify as Buddhist or Shinto or whatever. Some people, it matters. But, mm. um, so in, the, in the conclusion, you uh, note that Myanmar is gradually moving towards a more open political system with the installation of a democratically elected government for the first time in over half a century. I'm curious if you could talk a little bit about where you think the country is headed and, and what, what might be expected in the near future in terms of changes in, in daily life for people living um, in Myanmar. And I'm particularly interested in any thoughts you might have on how social media might be influencing daily life and shaping the direction of social, economic, and political change, and, and even maybe contributing to these kinds of daily entrepreneurial activities.
1: Mm. Yes. So uh, definitely, we can say that Myanmar has become more democratic and freer since 2011, and especially since 2015, when the opposition party took over the government. But it is still a democratic, a semi-democratic, semi-authoritarian country. The military still controls, have control over uh, security sectors and major uh, political, policy, decision-making, 25% of all the legislative seats are reserved for the military. And the country also continues to experience uh, armed conflicts in various parts of the, uh, the regions. But I would say that democratic reforms have improved the life of ordinary people to the extent that elected governments are now more accountable and responsive to the needs of the uh, ordinary poor people, um, they're providing more basic necessities and livelihood opportunities, and poor people are now having more venues to voice their grievances and to advocate for uh, changes. So, one of the um, source estimated that there were, they are now. Uh, 22 million internet user in Myanmar, which is mm-hmm. like a, a spike in the, in the usage. Um, this is about 40, over 40% of the populations. Mm-hmm. Um, so access as to social media creates more democratic space because it offers the tools and access to less privileged people Uh, to express their grievances, uh, to complain and to share news that would otherwise have been controlled by the central authorities. But like what have happened in other countries, social media and democratic structures can also foster the spread of misinformation and extremist views, especially if these views are expressed by the majority group, which shows very little toleration for opposing viewpoints or minority views. I also don't expect many of these coping strategies that are used by ordinary people to disappear overnight uh, because Burma is still one of the poorest countries in the world. And uh, recently the World Bank just predicted that you know, the poverty rate will be increased by five percent, five percent due to the effects of COVID. So, uh, despite the ongoing democratic reforms and you know more opportunities for ordinary and pe- poor people, I think that you know, coping strategies that I have mentioned in my book will continue to exist for an uh, indefinite period of time. I would say.
0: Yeah, certainly, uh, And COVID, of course, has had this you know kind of effect all over the place of really changing or, or I guess, intensifying problems that many countries are having. uh, Yes. Or, you know, or like in the United States, just, you know, having basically failed to address it effectively Mm -hmm. and generating new problems that maybe didn't need to be there. So so basically, I guess, then you you don't see major changes in the near future.
1: Um, Well, to some extent, I see changes in terms of people having more venues to express their grievances, uh, government being more accountable and more responsive. Um, So in terms of political ramps, I see some major changes, but in terms of regular, everyday-to-day economic activities, uh, I don't see a lot of major changes taking place.
0: Yeah. Well, so we've covered a fair amount of ground here, but this is, as I've said, a, really tremendously detailed and, and rich study. Um, and we've really covered the surface. And so I'm curious, is there anything that we haven't talked about that you'd like to raise for our listeners uh, in terms of your research or your book?
1: Yes. So I organize, um, co- in my book, I organize coping mechanism into four categories. Economic coping, uh, which are efforts to cut costs, expand income, um, second category is social coping. Uh, we talk about this. This is a reliance on family and community support. Uh, third, uh, political coping, uh, which is about dealing with authorities who are responsible for implementing policies that have impact on your economic activities, and psychological coping. And I find that psychological coping to be a significant aspect of coping mechanism in poor countries like Myanmar. Where the role of religion and religious institutions play uh, a prominent roles in people's life, uh, whether they are Buddhists, uh, which is the majority of the populations, or Christians, or Muslims, or enemies. Um, uh, in my research, I find that religious teachings uh, in this country provide people with you know, inspiration and boost their morale in times of economic hardships. Um, for instance, praying and meditation empower them and give them hope and motivation for a chance of advancement that did not exist before. And so to this extent, I find that religion can produce either resilient promotion or problem solving skill. And by providing people a sense of stability, purpose, contentment and empowerment. And, Religion can also have positive effects on physical health. So this is something that you don't see it on a widespread larger scale in rich and Western countries where people rely re- less on religion uh, to help solve their economic or political problems. Um, finally, i also like to emphasize that um, coping strategies that I found in Myanmar are not unique. You can find that all over the world, uh, Um, especially in poor and authoritarian countries um, and your experiences of doing research in Japan um, demonstrate that. I remember I gave a talk at the University of uh, Michigan at the Southeast Asian Brownback Seminar and one of the attendees who was an elderly lady remarked that the, the strategies that I talk about reminded her of the strategies that her mother used to uh, utilized when she was growing up during the World War II in America, so this is this is not uniquely a Myanmar situation. So at the end of the book, I draw a comparison from countries with similar level of political and economic situations, um, especially those in Asia, Latin America, and Africa, with particular purpose in mind for policymakers, because my argument is that you know these coping strategies such as um, Pooling resources or engaging in extra-income activities, entrepreneurial activities can empower people and make them more resilient, um, autonomous individuals. But many of these coping strategies can be self-defeating and can have negative impacts on environment and on democratic practices. For instance, efforts to cut costs on food, education, and healthcare can be counterproductive and can perpetuate poverty. Also, the widespread practice of paying bribes to authorities uh, to either extract special privileges or to disregard particular rules and regulations can also deepen inequality and injustice. Since people who cannot afford to pay bribes are the ones who need government's protections the most, so um, I, I think these are the main, you know, the the, uh, the main arguments that I want to have them come across uh, in the book that, you know, uh, so that uh, to emphasize that the book uh, has not just, you know, some theoretical implications that can be, um, that travel across the, you know, different periods and different regions, but also has some policy implications for uh, policymakers to um, have a more informed uh, decision-making when they deal with, um, the issue of poverty.
0: Yeah, I think that uh, that's actually one of the things that's uh, really important in the book. And, and you know, although it's outside of my main area of, of focus, I have I've read interesting things about, you know, for example, um, small-scale gold mining mm. in some countries in Latin America and how important this is to the well-being of People that are are doing this, but at the same time, there are problems generated because they use mercury in gold mining, and this pollutes the environment, and and of course, it's the environment that they're living in. And so there's this very difficult question of how to balance yes their need to develop what they need to develop with policy type things that are that also affect them, and you know, and,
1: exactly. Yes, yeah. and I found similar situations in Burma as well. So one of the self-defeating coping strategies that I talk about were the ones that involve in, you know, intensifying efforts to extract natural resources, uh, whether they're, um, you know, a forest and depleting, you know, resources from the forest or from, you know, the water or um, other resources that used to be available. Yeah.
0: So what uh what do you have planned next? What is your current research and and what kind of plans do you have for writing in the future? I guess as chair of the department maybe you don't have any plans. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Uh, Well, research is my passion. So even though I'm chair of the department, I I make sure that I have some time to focus on research. Uh, And uh, now I'm currently working on the impact of internal migrations on Myanmar's uh, intercommunal relationships. Uh, There has been increasing um, numbers of increasing rate of internal migration inside the country due to civil war, um, natural disaster, and economic difficulty. So you see that uh, increasing movement of populations um, across the country. And I'm looking at how these this movement of populations affect the, the local host uh, economy and the relationship between native and migrant populations in the country. And this has uh, larger theoretical and broader implications for both developed and developing countries that experience large influx of and uh, inflow and outflow of populations. And it's more important for countries like Burma, where ethnic identity is very polarized, um, politicized, and can have serious impacts on the relationship between migrants and native populations who come from different ethnicities. So uh, I'm currently working on that topic. um, And it's really, it's, uh, I feel like this topic really allows me to look at the two areas of my uh, expertise, uh, which are ethnic politics and political economy. So well,
0: that sounds really uh, fascinating. I, I'm looking forward to the next book already. I think it'll be uh,
1: <laughs> that really like interesting. Another, another ten years. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, it can it can be like that. It's uh, when when one gets involved in particularly academic administration, it tends to slow everything else down. And yeah. I think for people people like you and I who really, really enjoy the research side of things, it, it always feels like it's tugging at us to get back to it and focus on
1: that. Yeah, so, yeah. Oh.
0: Well, artist, I want to thank you for taking the time to join me on the New Books Network. Um, I'd say to our audience that anyone interested in, in political economy, development, um, or even culture in Myanmar, because there's a great deal of depth about the the our culture that, that floats through this book. Um, I think anyone will find this a very insightful and also very intellectually provocative read. It's been a pleasure talking with you uh, about this very fascinating and important book. Thank you.
1: Thank you so much, John, for your kind and, uh, recommendations and for giving me the opportunity to talk about my book. This actually is the first time I talk about my Book. Uh, This book came out. So thank you so much. It's really a pleasure. I've really enjoyed it. Thanks. Thank you.